It's not about the speculation and price speculation of where is the price of Bitcoin going. It's about how do we use these technologies to solve real problems for real customers. And to the extent that is delivering utility, then there is value in those underlying technologies and underlying assets. That's Brad Garlinghouse, CEO of Ripple, the $10 billion company behind XRP, the world's second largest cryptocurrency by value. Under Brad's leadership, Ripple has received widespread recognition, including being named to the CNBC Disruptor 50 and recognized as a technology pioneer by the World Economic Forum. Before Ripple, Brad served in senior executive roles at Yahoo and AOL. For all the crypto fans out there, in this episode, you'll get to hear Brad's insights on the crypto space, how to avoid what he calls the peanut butter trap, and what he thinks is in store for the future of Silicon Valley. This is Daniel Sachs, co-CEO of AppDirect, and it's time to decode cryptocurrency and fintech. Welcome to Decoding Digital, a podcast for innovators looking to thrive in the digital economy. I'm your host, Daniel Sachs, and I'll sit down with other founders, CEOs, and changemakers to decode the trends that are transforming the way we work. Let's decode. Brad, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Dan. Good to see you. Happy quarantine to the extent that doesn't seem too strange. Thanks. I think the last time we met, we had nice coffee and maybe some breakfast, which we won't be doing today. (laughs) Well, we'll have coffee, but remotely. Yeah. Yeah, we can do that. Before joining Ripple, you worked at early internet powerhouses, Yahoo and AOL. At the time, they were powerhouses. Less so today. (laughs) Maybe that's a good leading question. So tell us about what drew you to those companies and maybe also from an observation, what went wrong? Well, I'll start with Yahoo. My thesis kind of joining both companies is quite different. You know, Yahoo, I joined at the end of 2002, beginning of 2003. And you know, this was kind of a, I don't want to say dark moment of the internet's evolution, but the dot-com crash had happened. You know, measuring these things by market value, Yahoo's stock price, I think the market cap of the whole company was a few billion dollars. And, you know, it had a couple thousand employees. And so it had definitely gone through a lot. And my viewpoint generally was, on the hype cycle, people got too excited about what was going on on the internet. And then the despair cycle, people had gotten way too skeptical about what was going on at the internet. And fundamentally, I felt like the internet was changing the nature of how information is transmitted. And you know, that's super obvious now, nearly 20 years later. But at the time, it felt like Yahoo had the opportunity to be one of the most substantial internet companies. So the what went wrong, that's a longer Yahoo story, which I think we'll probably spend some time on as we talk today. But I think people forget that in you know, 2005, 2006, you know, Google was barely on the scene. Gmail had launched, and you know, Gmail was really Google's second product. So the only thing they had was search. And you know, Yahoo was kind of the what was at the time a big deal, and it was a great experience. You know, it felt like it was an amazing group of people. The alum network from that chapter of my life was extremely strong. I mean, interestingly, I had a guy named Mike Spicer reporting to me. I got him Stuart Butterfield reporting to me. I got him Scott Dietzen, the CEO of Pure Storage, reporting to me at various times. The Jeff Bonfort, you know, a really interesting group of people that went on to do, frankly, more interesting things than I've gone on to do. But Yahoo, I think, just kind of lost its way and we can talk more about that. 
AOL is a totally different animal. You know, AOL, I joined with the thesis that this massive audience, 100 million active monthly users was using AOL when I joined it in 2009, I think. And they had a lot of cash and it was spinning out of Time Warner. This is the kind of post-Time Warner mergers, like, hey, let's spin out AOL. It's got a lot of cash. It's got a lot of visitors. Let's reinvent what AOL is. And you know, I got very excited with that entrepreneurial opportunity to say, hey, we've got all these users, an audience that's there. If we could introduce them and engage them in new ways, that that could be compelling. I now subscribe more so than I did then to the Warren Buffett saying of most turnarounds don't turn. And it turns out that in this case, that was certainly the case that it was a really hard journey. And I was traveling back and forth. The headquarters were in New York City, working for a guy named Tim Armstrong, and kind of finally said, look, this is tough, and decided to pull the parachute and look at something more local. Anyway, so there's a couple starting thoughts on those early internet powerhouses. What lessons could you take from that to, let's say, traditional businesses that are looking to digitally transform and embrace innovation in a new way for the first time to move into the digital age and hopefully become a growth player in their industry? I have two thoughts on that. One is, I think you have to be really clear about what you're trying to achieve. You know, I remember, and I'm sure, Dan, well, this may be before you got as involved because you're younger than I am. But back in the late 90s, 97, 98, 99, there's this phenomena of bricks and mortar retailers adding a .com to their name as if like that was a digital transformation. And by the way, their stock price would go up when they did that. It's just like, oh boy. And I think it kind of missed the point. And understanding where you're going, understanding what outcome you seek, I think having clarity about that going in will help enable a robust digital transformation. I think some people just say, hey, we're going to hire a chief digital officer. That was kind of all the rage for a period of years. And you had all these companies, hey, okay, we got our chief digital officer, but okay, what does that mean? And what are they empowered to do? How are we going to measure? What are their OKRs that we care about? And so the second thing I would really push on is focus, focus, focus. Be clear about what outcome you're seeking and then focus, focus, focus. I think, and certainly this is true at Yahoo and one of the things that became well-known for is I wrote this document called the Peanut Butter Manifesto. And the Peanut Butter Manifesto was really talking about how Yahoo was trying to be all things to all people. I did this exercise at a leadership offsite. I remember actually where we were when we did this at a hotel down in Santana Row. About 30 or 40 people in the room, and I said, Okay, everybody's got a piece of paper in front of you. On that piece of paper, I'm going to say a brand. And when I say the brand, I want you to write what word comes to mind. And so at the time, again, this is back in 2005 or six. And I would say eBay, and people would say auctions. And I would say PayPal, they'd say payments. Plan. And I'd say Google, and at the time, it was just search. I would go through like five or six of those. And then I would say Yahoo. And I'd say, Now don't say it out loud, just write it down. And then you go around the room and ask people to share what was the word that the Yahoo brand represented. And what would happen is you'd go around the room and people would, some people would say sports, some people would say fantasy, some people would say search, some people would say mail, some people would say, you know, whatever. But the point I try to make is like, if we as a leadership team are confused about the Yahoo brand represents, certainly our consumers are also going to be confused about what the Yahoo brand represents. And to me, that was the kind of point of the peanut butter manifesto. If we aren't focused on some specific thing, we're not going to be successful at anything. And we're going to be very average at everything. And as companies decide to focus on certain things, be the best in the world at search, then you know we're not going to win that. And there are a lot of things that I think Yahoo could have done better in retrospect. 
But that was certainly one that I think we didn't handle perfectly. So if you're trying to kick off a digital transformation, one, be clear about what outcomes you want. Two, focus, focus, focus. And don't let the new bright, shiny object interrupt you from that focus. I think that's true for entrepreneurial endeavors as well. So tell us about the origins of cryptocurrency and how did it evolve and why did you join Ripple? Well, so look, I'm not the best person to give you the first part of that question, like the origins of cryptocurrency. I actually didn't get involved with crypto deeply until I was at Ripple. I did own Bitcoin already when I joined Ripple. And so I had been exposed to crypto a bit before then through a good friend of mine who sadly has passed away named Dave Goldberg. But Dave knew that I was an angel investor in various companies and said, look, Brad, whatever you usually write the check for into an angel investment, you should buy that much worth of Bitcoin. And, you know, think about it that way. And I was like, all right, Dave's a smart guy. I like him. And he badgered me into it. But from my point of view, the way I think about the origins of crypto, it really was kind of born of this idea during the financial crisis of 2009, 2010, that the banks are bad for society. And the idea that we shouldn't trust government to manage currency. And there's certainly examples where that there's truth to that. And even I think many in the crypto community in those earliest stages, earliest days, we're very libertarian in their kind of, we want to take anonymity back. We want to be able to control our financial lives with anonymity. I think a lot of those things are kind of key tenets of the origins. And when I had purchased Bitcoin, I thought, you know, that those are really interesting, but I kind of think the idea that we're not going to live in a world of laws is a little bit like I'm not really buying it. And so I remember first hearing kind of the ripple pitch in 2015, maybe into 2014, 2015. And I remember, you know, to me, the simplest thing at the time was, look, we actually want to work with the government. We want to work with banks to leverage these technologies to actually impact way more people. Because even today, with the success of Bitcoin and some crypto that is designed for more anonymous transactions, it's a tiny, tiny fraction of the global financial system. I think if you want to impact the most people and really put a dent in the universe, you want to see how do we reach 99%, not 1%? Not how do we get the 1% using Bitcoin for you know payments to 2%, 3%? It's like, look, no, I'm going to go work with the major institutions, the major governments, and I'm going to introduce these technologies in such a way that they can have a broad impact on a broad cut of the population, the unbanked, the underbanked, in ways that I think are pretty profound. I think we all have to remind ourselves it's not about the speculation and price speculation of where is the price of Bitcoin going. It's about how do we use these technologies to solve real problems for real customers. And to the extent that is delivering utility, then there's value in those underlying technologies and underlying assets. On the speculation side, I think shortly after you joined Ripple, Ripple co-founder Chris Larson, didn't his network spike to about $60 billion due to a huge bump in XRP valuation? I never really dug into that. But yes, the value of crypto in, I guess it was 2018, went through a massive kind of speculative frenzy, which has to some degree worked itself out. I mean, I still think it hasn't totally worked itself out. I only say that because there are now thousands of different cryptocurrencies. And I think the vast majority of them, I'm not a believer. I mean, I frankly have said publicly, not recently, but I've said publicly, I think 99% of cryptocurrencies are probably going to go to zero. I think there's a small number that are actually at the top end, and I certainly include Bitcoin, I include Ether, I include XRP on that list, that they actually have real value in how they're solving problems for consumers, for businesses. The way Ripple deploys XRP is really to solve an institutional problem for banks 
and that has served us well. But I think that speculative frenzy certainly drove Chris Larson's net worth way up. Yeah, no, it's crazy. You, know, you look on the, I think it's the cover of Forbes, it's like he's the fifth richest person overnight. What's into this crypto stuff? Kind of like in the 90s, Netscape IPO, that was a whoa moment for me. But like you say, it's about the underlying technology, right? I remember where I was when Netscape went public in 95. I think it was August of 1995. And yes, that was a moment, a frenzy of interest in participating in that IPO, which brought a lot of attention into the industry overall. But it also, I think that interest brought a lot of investment, brought a lot of attention. And so I think in some ways, that crypto frenzy did the same thing. The number of smart entrepreneurs, the number of investors who came in and said, look, Blockchain technologies are actually, I think, quite profound in how they can change the nature of transactions. Ripple focused on payment transactions. Other people working on other things. But I think at its core, the novelty of a blockchain, this is a little bit academic and maybe a little bit esoteric also, but the novelty of a blockchain is simply enabling two parties to transact without trust, but with certainty. So today, if you and I were going to transact, you know, there has to be a middleman involved. Now, the middleman could be I'm passing you a $100 note or $20 note, and it's effectively the U.S. government, the Federal Reserve note, is commuting trust between us because you trust that that is worth something. But you know, today, if you want a middleman to transact, you have a credit card company, you got stock transactions. I mean, you know, pick your middleman, but there's a middleman everywhere. Well, a blockchain is basically saying, hey, take out the middleman. You can still transact. You can have certainty, but you don't have to have trust. And so anybody who's in the middleman business in financial transactions, I think blockchain technologies have the opportunity to disrupt that. And again, Ripple has said, look, cross-border transactions, banking transactions, cross-border transactions, there's trillions of dollars flowing globally. And in many ways, like it's stuck on how it was developed 50 years ago. You know, it's amazing to me that like literally you can stream video from the space station. But if you, Dan, want to send money to me in London, that's going to take days to get there. And it's going to cost you a fair number. And it's kind of like, wait, how do we end up here where I can do all these things on almost an instantaneous basis, but I can't move my own money from point A to point B? So to me, that's the middleman transaction, how blockchains can be leveraged. Ripple has decided to focus on you know payments, and particularly cross-border payments. But look, there's a whole bunch of middle transactions that could be disintermediated to improve speed, to improve cost, efficiency. And I think blockchain technologies will impact a lot of industries over the next 10 years. So you spoke to hype cycles a few times, you know, back with Yahoo Netscape era, and then potentially again today. And you also mentioned that hype cycles are maybe necessary because they take esoteric technologies and make them more aware in the public light. But where do you think we are on the hype cycle for both crypto and overall tech right now? And how do you think that will impact the future of work 15 years out? I do think the next two to three years are very bullish for crypto at large. And that's because you have governments around the world, U.S. government being one example, printing massive amounts of additional dollars, right? The stimulus associated with COVID that's happening on a global basis. Well, when that happens, the dollars you hold, you know, if you print more dollars, the dollars you hold just became worth less. That's is inflation. So over time, I think you are seeing people saying, I don't want to hold dollars. I want to hold something that is non-inflationary. And crypto is a good example. When you go out and inflate currencies, fiat currencies, your people want to hold non-inflationary assets. Crypto is an interesting new one that I think people are increasingly like, huh, that's a pretty good one. So I think that bodes very well for the kind of next several years. 
the hype cycle on tech more broadly, I mean, look, I think tech is in an interesting, and I'll even say a little bit of a frustrating and depressing spot. Yeah, and I say this as I I'll call myself a veteran of Silicon Valley. I've been here 23 years. I have been a part of, as we talked about, some interesting companies and certainly watched them up close and personal. But I think tech needs to take ownership for both how it has positively contributed to the evolution of society and how we interact together. We also need to take responsibility for some of the negative, unintended consequences. I think look, there are a lot of positives. The fact that you and I can have this conversation, I don't know where you are geographically, I'm in California, you know, the fact that we can do this so seamlessly and it can be recorded and like it's magic. But there's also factors that we look at and we're like, wow, how is tech contributing to echo chambers? How is tech commuting to the polarization of, frankly, society? How is it being abused by bad actors? And I think when I see tech leaders not owning that and not saying, hey, we didn't intend those abusive behaviors, but we can help address them. I think it's frustrating for me as a tech veteran to see that happen. And there's a really powerful Netflix documentary called The Social Dilemma that if you haven't seen and your viewers and listeners haven't seen, I, it's worth listening to. For those of us in tech, you know, we know some of the people in the documentary and it, it helps people understand some of what has driven where we are. And again, it's just the first step to solving the problem is admitting you have a problem. And when I see some of these tech leaders kind of say, well, no, no, that's not our fault. I think, wait a minute, come on, guys. Like, I know that the intent wasn't that bad outcome, but to not acknowledge there's been some bad outcomes is a little bit hard for me to process. Do you think the solution is policy? Obviously, you know, Congress has taken a very vocal stance with the tech leaders trying in many ways to vilify, but also drive accountability. Do you think this becomes a policy issue? Is it better self-regulation? I agree with you on the admitting the problem. How does this make progress in the next few years? Self-regulation on this topic has not worked. The evidence is rampant. I think when self-regulation doesn't work, I only see one alternative. It is for the regulatory dynamics in Washington, D.C. to change, or by state, Sacramento, to enforce a level of accountability. You know, If YouTube feels financial risk associated with scams on their platform, they're going to change their posture. They're going to change the way they engage on this because there is risk to them. Now, look, I'm not smart enough and I have spent enough time on it to know exactly how to approach it, but I will suffice to say, I don't think self-regulation is going to work. So you mentioned you've worked with a lot of tech leaders, people like Stuart Butterfield at Slack, or you knew Dave Goldberg, founder of SurveyMonkey. In this community of early Silicon Valley leaders, what have you learned from those who have succeeded? And are there characteristics specifically of people that you worked with that outperformed versus not? That's a really good, hard question. I mean, look, there's sometimes I see entrepreneurs who I think are, wow, like they are so talented, they are so smart, and they don't achieve success. And you kind of say like, well, why? What went wrong? And look, anyone who tells you luck isn't part of what drives success that's not true. Like luck is a factor, right time, right place. But you know, if I were to highlight a couple of attributes that I value in the investments I have made as an angel investor, and as I think about people I like to hire, optimism is one. It's kind of a fundamental belief that you put any wall in front of me, I will find a way through it, around it, over it, under it. You know, actually, I do say to my kids, I don't talk about my kids a lot, but when they say the word can't at home, I say, I don't know what that means. I'm like, the word can't to me, like, it's just, it's not a word. Like, you may choose not to. It may be difficult to do that. 
but can't is very rarely. And like they love to have fun and say, well, you can't teleport into the middle of the sun. And I'm like, not yet. <laughs> not yet. I don't know how to do it yet. But somebody's got to figure it out. I don't know. Maybe it's a bad example. But I think that amazing entrepreneurs, there's a sense of optimism and a sense of like can do that is really powerful. The second thing I'll just highlight in all these two, this is going to sound a little bit derogatory or pejorative, but it's effective storytelling. The best entrepreneurs are good at articulating a vision, articulating where they see the world going. And there's people sometimes I think, God, they're so smart, but they're not good at storytelling. If you really want to be an entrepreneur and build a new vertical, develop a new category, you've got to help the world see what could happen. And effective storytelling, I think, is an important part of that. Both really impactful traits. Really appreciate that. So I know the last time we connected, you talked about the crypto space and a lot of crypto fans out there and people reaching out, some famous, wanted to get to know you, wanted to get to learn more. Can you tell our viewers about who and why and how? I think maybe right around the time I saw you, I had just had the opportunity to sit down for coffee with Bono and The Edge. And they were super interested in what's going on with crypto. And I will say, both of them were quite knowledgeable. The Edge was super plugged in. Like He asked very specific questions, even about performance issues, different blockchain technologies, and scalability. And you're kind of like, I was super impressed. And it was very, obviously, as a guy who went to high school and graduated high school in the late 80s, you know, the Joshua Tree album and you know, U2 was the, you know, so for me, there's examples like that that have been, you know, very cool opportunities to kind of connect with people and talk about how these technologies could actually impact. Like, you know, Bono particularly has been incredibly generous with his time, his energy, his attention, and some of his money in addressing particularly communities that I would describe as either completely unbanked or very much underbanked and how some of these technologies can bring them into the financial system in a way that is constructive is a big deal. So those are just maybe just one example of an interesting opportunity. Got it. Fast forward like 15 years, do you think Silicon Valley will still be the center of gravity for technology? Silicon Valley's dominance isn't going to go away but I guess if you were to describe it as a concentration, if you were to have kind of a metric of concentration, I think that will change and the concentration will go down. I think COVID has obviously had an impact on a lot of cities. I think the tail for how it impacts San Francisco and the San Francisco community might be a little bit longer than how it impacts New York City, for example. New York City has a broad-based economy. You already have some of the investment banks. They want their traders already back on desk. Like, And there's tech there. And so I think that the New York City, people will come back to New York City more quickly. I think San Francisco, when you have companies that have said, like Twitter, I would pilot as one, and said, look, you can permanently work remote. All right, so what does that mean? If 10% of people in San Francisco take advantage of that, you know, 10% doesn't sound like a lot, but that means tens of thousands of people don't move back to San Francisco, don't come back. Like, how does that impact, given the concentration of tech as a major employer in the Bay Area, to your core question, do I think that the concentration 15 years from now of tech as the center of gravity out here in the Bay Area, it will become more distributed, right? COVID has accelerated what was already happening. Is there a call-out technology or trend that you see now on the early precipice that you think is going to be game-changing in the future? Well, I'm going to talk my own book. I'll give you two answers. One, look, I do think blockchain technologies are still in the early innings and digital assets are in the early innings for how they transform various transactions. 
we talked about that earlier, but I think there's a lot of industries that will be touched by blockchain technologies that we haven't even started. The second one, I mean, I'm not smart enough to go into this industry, but I am completely fascinated as a human by genetics and some of what's going on with regard to understanding genetics, being able to, you know, I feel like the word manipulate suggests a negative, but to be able to leverage these understanding in a way that is the betterment of the human experience, I think is a very big deal. And I like, as an entrepreneur, I like to get involved with things where I feel like you can put a dent in the universe. That's what gets me up in the morning. I think Ripple has been an example of that. There are certainly companies in the genetic space that, and again, I don't know who's going to win, who's not going to win, but I think if I were to reset my career for the next 20 years right now, genetics would be high on my list of like being really smart. I'm not, but you know, I would be interested in pursuing that. Amazing. Any last piece of advice you'd give to our listeners? Look, I think it's great you're doing this. I think it's great you're taking the time as a commitment of your time and it's fun to do it. I appreciate you inviting me and hopefully somewhat constructive for your viewers and listeners. Thanks so much, Brad. Yeah, good to see you. On the next episode of Decoding Digital, we decided that work was not a place. And if work is not a place and it's something that you need to be able to conduct from anywhere, then how do we define that? We just imagined all the pieces that would need to be possible to enable work from anywhere. Former president and CEO of Citrix Systems, Mark Templeton. Thanks for listening to Decoding Digital. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. To learn more, visit decodingdigital.com. Until next time.